Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Gong, the podcast hosting conversations about the earliest stages of startup sales and all the fun biz dev stories that come from companies with little cash, no precedence, and lots of guts. My name is Adriel Lubarski, and I've led sales at four companies, twice as CEO, twice as head of sales, sometimes unsuccessfully, and other times with some great wins. Currently, I lead sales at self-driving car company Udell. I love startup history, scrappy sales and stories, and I'm excited to learn them and share them with you. On this episode, we've got Lars Nilsson. A little bit of bio about Lars. Lars started his career 30 years ago at Xerox. While that company doesn't seem cool now, remember that in 1989, when Lars started selling copiers there, Xerox was number 22 on the Fortune 500 with revenues of over $16 billion. By the time Lars left in 1993, revenues at Xerox were over $18 billion, probably entirely due to Lars's sales. Just kidding, sort of. From there, Lars has been VP of sales at companies like Hewlett Packard, but more interestingly to us, he's led sales at startups from early stages through IPO like Portal Software, ArcSight, and most recently Cloudera. And now after 30 years of being on the front lines of early stage sales, He's an advisor at True Ventures and the founder of SalesSource. He helps startups from pre-revenue all the way through pre-IPO set up their sales organizations. I really, really learned a lot from this conversation. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy and take notes during my conversation with Lars Nilsson. Lars, uh, welcome to The Gong. The Gong! The Gong! This is The Gong! (laughs) Nothing to do with Gong I.O. This is the Gong. This is hitting the Gong. This is hitting the Gong. This is hitting the Gong when you hit a sale and you want, you want to let the whole floor you know. Want, this is Babe Ruth in your way to All success. Right. Absolutely. This is this is the Gong where we talk about early stage <laughs> startup sales. Um, this is going to be really fun uh, because of all your experience actually doing it uh, as a VP and a variety, all your field sales up and, and inside sales ops and all those things. Um, for pre-IPO companies, larger companies like HP, advising smaller companies, and I had this whole list of questions we were going to start off with, but as always, that gets blown out the window because we have a nice little five-minute conversation beforehand, and now uh, what I would love to hear you answer first is you mentioned that nobody really teaches sales in college. It's the lost segments of the business schools out there. If you were to be teaching a freshman seminar on sales, how do you structure your course? What would your curriculum look like? God, super. I, that's a curveball, right? Uh, kind of from left field. So um, the first thing that comes to mind is what I tell a brand new, newly minted founder who just got one to three million dollars for their idea. For the most part, they have an idea. They might have some code but they don't have a product. They don't have a minimum viable product and they don't have any revenue. And so I might start there if I was teaching a class because what I say to that founder who eventually wants to get to revenue, but they don't have a product that they can sell yet. And so one of the first things that I'll tell them is, and I learned this from a guy named Craig Rosenberg. He's uh, also known as the funnel holic. And he says to founders like this, Write your first line of blog before you write your first line of code. And what he means by that is if you're a founder and you have, you're going to market with an idea for a product, service, or something that you're going to sell and you're going to disrupt that industry or that market or that space, don't you want to be identified as the subject matter expert and the person that's going to come in and, and be the thought leader, start writing about it. Because what'll happen when you start writing about the problem you're solving is you'll start to build a community of listeners. You'll, if, if, it's, if it's interesting at all and it's a big problem that people perceive, you'll get invited to speak on podcasts, you'll be invited to speak at events, and you'll start to build name brand recognition, not just for yourself, but for your company and hopefully your product. And what that does is it, it brings people in, and there's these things called leads, and we'll get we'll, we'll, we'll dig into that a little bit more, but today, someone listening to a podcast, someone downloading um, a, a previously recorded webinar, 
Someone going to your LinkedIn profile and uh, reading a, a thought leadership piece or a blog post, a LinkedIn post, they all become inbound, opt inbound to marketing, um, marketing qualified leads. Um, you now know who they are. You know how long they spent in your, uh, you know, in your environment. Whether that's they listened to the podcast for 13 minutes, then they decided to go to your website and read a bunch of other stuff. These are all signals of engagement that allow you to understand whether or not they're just kicking tires or they're truly interested in maybe having a follow-on conversation. And really, before you start selling anything, you have to understand whether or not the problem you're solving is, uh, is resonating with anyone and so writing about what it is you're doing serves as a way to generate digital assets or content that can be consumed by people that you can then continue to market and 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 potentially one day sell to so that's that that's the first thesis of inbound right be useful be helpful put your ideas out there be everywhere your clients are if they're podcast listeners types be there if they're blog readers be on medium so on and so forth but how do you advise either this freshman student or this pre-revenue founder to balance the, hey, you know, write your first line of blog before your first line of code, put this stuff out there, go speak, go do webinars, do all these things that might have very long tails, but at the same time, hurry up and make sure people aren't just wasting your time and wasting the company's time and close deals. So how do you balance this longer term right. value marketing, so to speak, with the shorter term, we need to see some traction? Well, the People only buy, the only time anyone buys anything, and certainly technology, is because they've found a problem. They are hurting in some way, shape, or form. They either know it, and they're searching for a problem or a solution, or they don't know it, and they need to be re reached out to and inspired and taught about what might ail them and that there's a solution for it. And so, right, you have to educate, and you have to teach somebody something new and by teaching them about a potential solution that can solve a pain point is really the crux of sales um, uh, and and again you're either you either know you have a problem or you don't and so that's the difference between inbound and outbound and for a new salesperson that is thinking about a career in sales the most fun you have is when you teach somebody something new based on what it is that your product can do for them. Um, and if they've been going along by doing something manually or doing something with technology that isn't as fast or isn't as efficient or isn't, um, or, or can replace people because you're automating something and you see that kind of fire in their eyes, like, whoa, you just told me, you just gave me something that might be able to move not only my company, but my career forward. Because when you're, a buyer of technology at a company and you bring in something that makes your company's system of operation or it's it does it better and faster and more economically you're right you're you're driving value for the company but also if you're the one that brought it in it's a prideful moment for you and it's also in a lot of cases a career defining, right? You're the person that's solving problems and making you either more efficient or more competitive or more differentiating. Um, that is truly what sales is, is putting in solutions that make you more differentiated as a company, as a product, as an individual. Yeah, a friend once told me uh, the way they look at it is they phrase it as trading value for value. Sure. So you're not tricking anybody to do anything, you're giving them value, solving a problem, you're getting value back money or marketing or branding or whatever the value you're looking for is back. Right. At the end of any sales cycle, hopefully there's a pile of cash. And for that pile of cash that you give me, I'm going to give you this beautiful piece of code, this beautifully orchestrated set of services, this piece of hardware that's going to, you know, whatever it is. But a sale is only done when someone relieves of themselves a pile of cash for something that's gonna make them and or their companies better off. So some of this is sort of the, uh, called the soft side of sales. It's the understanding people, the listening to people, the getting to the root of their problem. 
And we'll move our way into the, I think you compared uh, making a sale to building an engine, uh, the science of doing sales. And I want to get there via the story you can tell, I hope, um, about you started your career as at probably the second most influential sales company, Xerox, second after maybe the Encyclopedia Britannica <laughs> <laughs> or uh, makeup jewelry yeah, or things yeah, like that. Yeah. So selling Xerox um, at the time that you were, you were maybe only a, a decade, 15 years out from this being a revolutionary technology right. that nobody understood. What was that experience like? And what was for anybody who knows it or not or likes technology or business or sales or really anything to do with anything that happens in the modern world, Xerox defined all of that for decades. What was that experience like? Adam, that's interesting that you, your age, know that. Yeah, Xerox, out of the Palo Alto Research Center, innovated the seven out of the ten um, modern office, right? The graphical user interface, the mouse, um, the fax machine, the copier. Anyway, I came in in the late 80s. Uh, it wasn't too many years removed from when Xerography um, had gone through its 17-year patent and and now all of a sudden there were 25 Japanese camera manufacturers that all had copiers uh, waiting to sell. And so I came into the sales profession at a time where copiers were probably the most non-differentiated and very competitive. There wasn't anything that differentiated Mita from Savin, from Canon, from Kodak, from Xerox. The hardware was the same. Maybe the service and support um, we had a much broader set of uh, service professionals that had cars that could come out and fix your copier. But as far as a product itself, there was very little to differentiate on. Mm -hmm. So what did I get when I stepped on, you know, into Xerox uh, my first day? Um, they gave me a gas card. Uh, they gave me a pager. And they gave me a territory. The territory was three zip codes in Southern California. Um, the gas card was to get me from my home and or office out to my territory. And the pager was, and these things, if you don't know what a pager is, it, it's a small little thing that sits on your belt that has a liquid crystal display. Like a cell phone. A cell phone before <laughs> cell phones, and it was like a uh, text. It was version 1.0 of text. And um, if an inbound lead came into my manager who sat in the Long Beach district, and it was in my territory, my manager, Bruce Roberts, could text his telephone number to my pager and I would get it across my liquid crystal display. If I was driving, I would find the nearest Denny's because Denny's always had pay phones. And I could stop and take four dimes with me because I would call Bruce and I would say, Bruce, what's up? And he's like, you know, Mary over at ABC uh, Manufacturing uh, sent in a request for a quote and it looks like she needs a 5028. Um, go over there and see, uh, you know, ask your series of questions. Two more dimes, I would call Mary. Uh, Mary, if she was there, would pick up and I would get the coordinates of, of the office and I would drive over. And then I would come out with my pitch book and my qualifying questions and I would ask about, you know, and, and that's kind of how sales was done in a lot of different companies back in the 70s and 80s. And parts of that translate well, uh, qualifying questions. What was, what is framing questions like? What was it like then? And then how do you advise people to think about it now? How to think about qualifying questions towards their customers? You know, it's actually very similar because what you're looking to tease out is the problems that they have with their current technology, right? Uh, you're there because they either, um, they have a copier that isn't working or it's failing or there's too many service or there's too many jams. And so you learn um, what those qualifying questions are. And what I will say, um, back in the day, in the 80s, there were very few companies big enough that actually put their new hire salespeople through, through sales training. Xerox and IBM at the time were the two companies that literally hired young adults out of college and put them through a sales training, a formal, um, again, I didn't learn how to negotiate and handle objections and close uh, in college, but Xerox put me through an 11-month training program. So before I actually stepped foot in my territory, I mean, I was getting paid, I was getting benefits, I had a workstation, um, I had a manager, but I wasn't yet 
uh, cleared for takeoff, we called it. I wasn't yet allowed to, to walk my patch, uh, if you will, and start knocking on doors and, and trying to get meetings with office managers to understand their typewriter, fax, and copier needs. I instead got sent to Leesburg, Virginia in training centers in uh, Southern California. And they were training Chicago. you in, what was it? You were sitting in a big auditorium and Zig Ziglar was speaking to you? Like, what was, what was uh, happening? Uh, 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 one week it was in Leesburg, uh, understanding how, to, how xerography works, understanding the product. Next week it was in Chicago and we had to memorize a 17-page script and, 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 and uh, say it verbatim back to our sales manager. Um, in another session, it was a full week on just learning how to handle objections that were from the industry, from buyers. Mm. Um, another one, it was learning how to close. Another one, it was learning how to negotiate. And again, um, these are all skills that can be taught. But again, these are not things that you pick up in college, right? Yeah, you go to communications classes and business economics classes and maybe some entrepreneurship classes. but. The actual art of sales is not something that uh, today exists in a ton of colleges. I know Baylor University, and there are now, I think, up to 20 universities that have formal programs. Um, and now what's coming up in, their, in that absence is companies that have understood that out there in the world are people that are money motivated, that have this grit or fire in the belly that is hugely valuable to anyone in sales, right? If if you're motivated to get up every morning and get after whatever it is you want to sell um, and you're willing to learn and read and listen and take mentorship and guidance and learn how to sell, just about anyone can do it, right? You just have to have that, I call it fire in the belly. It's that willingness and ability to want to learn and keep trying and practicing, right? Give me the phone and I'll get a hundred no's, but eventually I'll get a yes, I'll get better. And I'll get on the rookie court and listen to someone who's been very successful on my team that's been there before. And I will listen to her talk about um, our product to a brand new customer. Or I'll listen to him talk to a current customer about, you know, renewing uh, a year-long subscription. I'll learn what that, what really good looks like. But again, mentorship, great frontline sales management, um, good leadership, uh, all combines... Uh, to help younger in their career people understand what really good looks like. And again, I think mentorship, coaching, and guidance are things that we're now hearing more and more about. Um, I, when I came back from my 11-month training, I was so ready to go out and pound pavement in my, I just wanted to knock on every door. And I got up earlier and I stayed later because I just wanted to prove to myself and my team and my manager and my leadership that I was one of the best took some time, but again, I had the staying power and this is what I wanted to do to, and I wanted to prove it to everyone, including myself. And when you're in sales and you have the benefit of a commissions plan that allows you to see if I sell this much, I can make this much. And again, comp plans for salespeople have multipliers. So as you do better, you make more. Mm. And as you get to the end of a, a, a week, month, or quarter, and you're in accelerators, you're gonna work even harder and longer and smarter. Um, and that's what ends up motivating a lot of people going into sales jobs. Um, it doesn't mean that everything else isn't exciting, but for me, man, I grew up, right? Uh, my parents immigrated from Sweden. I grew up in Southern California. I went to high school, college in America. Free enterprise capitalist. Um, a little different than Sweden. You, yeah, a lot different, let me tell you. Um, you work hard. Um, you can you can orchestrate a lot of goodness for yourself and your family. Um, and I look back in my 33 career and um, I learned from the best. Um, and I got to tell you, when I got my first sales manager job, I had what unbelievable looked like already in my career bag because the first manager I got at Xerox was one of the best. Xerox, in addition to one of the best sales training programs on the planet, had one of the best sales management programs on the planet. And so they enabled, they onboarded, they trained better than anyone. So today I've been in high tech startups for 20 years. Um, 
a, a young founder or a founder of a technology company that has never built a business before, who has just taken funding in order to grow a business, um, they've never been through an onboarding enablement and training program like Xerox. And so they're looking for great, what, what does great look like? They have no idea. I got to see what great looked like right out of the chute. And again, for some of your listeners who are looking to get into their first job, I would look for companies where they are known for onboarding, enablement, and training of their new hires. Because if you're going into a company, you've never sold that product, that piece of software, or whatever that is before, um, and you don't know, right? All, all the value drivers, all the qualification questions, all the objections that you're going to get from your buyers, if you don't know how to answer those, you're very quickly going to not be a subject matter expert, and then they're going to realize they don't need you as much. They want to learn something new from the person sitting in front of them. It's not just a talking head giving them, uh, you know, uh, canned questions that have been given to them in a playbook. They want you to understand their space, their industry. They want you to have spent out, if you know, a lot of time plant pre-planning for that call. Understand the business. We now have access to tools that can tell you, you can go deep into people's backgrounds. Um, you can Google them and understand everything that they've been through. And you'd be clever about it too. You could find things on LinkedIn, drop a few hints, like you've been to that town that they went to college in, do little things around that, and then it could that. continue to develop that. And I think the part that you mentioned there that I particularly enjoy is the, the factor of education, uh, educating the clients. And instead of just, you know, in a long sales cycle, uh, you if you're having a call every other week, you feel like you're in luck because somebody keeps dragging you down the line and hopefully you have the steps and the, the hurdles that you need to pass through. But sooner or later, you've educated on all you can educate and you've asked all the questions you can ask. The most important thing that I find you can do at that time is just continue to give them resources, send them things tangential to what you're doing that you think could be helpful at other sides of them and make sure that they know that you, I, the person that they're coming to to hopefully spend hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars with are more than just this product. You are a, 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 a deep pool of resources. You're a deep pool of knowledge. You know everything in the industry that might affect them and they can come to you. They can trust you. They can bet other things with you and you just become trustworthy in ways that may take a while to come to fruition but that follows you along through your career. There's no doubt and uh, the images of... Um... Uh, the front cover of this book that a lot of salespeople have read and that I think anyone that wants to go into business and potentially sell something, regardless of the role you have, is a book called The Challenger Sale. And The Challenger Sale is a book that was written by um, a bunch of people that came out of the corporate executive board. And it was done on the heels of probably three to five years of research and getting in front of buyers of technology. And they asked them just a ton of questions. And one of the insights that came out of this was because in today's kind of interconnected and, and the world that is tied together through the internet, we now have access to near perfect information on everything and everyone and every product. And what, our, what a lot of people are doing today is they're going to the internet and they're researching technologies, they're researching vendors, they're understanding what other people are saying about them. In other words, they know the first 30 minutes of your pitch before you give it. Not only do they know that, but they've probably talked to someone who implemented my technology mm -hmm. at their company. They know, they've probably been given a proposal or two or three and know what, a disc, what the discount strategy of the vendor that they've selected may be. In other words, um, companies who are searching for solutions to their problems are selling themselves to the tune of they're literally bringing themselves down the sales cycle 60 70 sometimes 80 percent of the way before they even reach out to the vendor what, what does that mean dig into that so uh, imagine me i'm at xerox i'm 21 years old i just graduated from ucsb and now i'm making my first cold call i knock on a business i take a look i see they have a copier i get excited it's an old savin I get excited, but they don't know who the hell I am. I introduce myself. Um, they don't, may not even, they, their copier may be in perfect condition. They may have bought it a month ago. I don't know that, but that's a question I ask. Once I find out that they bought a copier a month ago, there's no sale for me there. They just spent $10,000. I'm done. I walk out. 
Um, so, uh, but if that copier is three years old and it's been jamming and the paper doesn't feed through and uh, the quality, image quality sucks, uh, they may be going through the yellow pages looking for copiers and they may see uh, three different companies that they call. And if I'm not one of them, then I'm never going to know. Uh, but today with the internet there, if your copier goes down, you can go and start researching. Today, if someone is researching and they hit my website, I'm gonna know. Um, but the point of, of the story is, is that everyone today, they're not waiting for a salesperson to call them to tell them about something that they could care less about or don't know about. Most people today, when they do have a problem or they've heard about another uh, company having solved a problem, they're gonna go and do their own research. And the coolest thing today happens when I'm at a company and I get an unsolicited inbound call from a company that says, hey, listen, Lars, um, I've spent the last three months researching Cloudera, Hortonworks, and MapR. Those are the three companies that used to be kind of the de facto standard in the big data space. They were all the um, companies that had a solution. And they were really the only three back in the day. Um, and I would, my team would get a call where they would say, we've spent three to six months, we've researched all three companies. We've without all, talking to you. Without talking yeah. to us. We've, we've, we've seen, we've been through the websites, we've talked to customers, we've listened to podcasts from all three companies, and we've already uh, ruled out MapBar, and we think that either Cloudera or Hortonworks might be uh, a solution for us. We'd like to set up a demo uh, here are the parameters that we're going to give both companies. I mean, imagine, yeah. this is not just an inbound lead. This is a qualified opportunity where they've already sold themselves on, they're going to use one of the two vendor technologies. They know the weaknesses, they know the strengths, they know the... So then what are they buying on if they know the weaknesses? And I imagine you guys are fairly similar at, at a certain point. You can talk about differences all day long, but for the most part... You're solving a fairly similar problem. What are they buying? Are they buying you, the salesperson? Are they buying the the flashiness of the demo, the red carpet in the office? They're looking for you to guide them into your technology in a way that is um, it's seamless, it's easy, um, and they're going to get value from your solution as quickly as possible. You know, implementing a big data solution. There's a lot of moving parts. Uh, it's very complicated. How honest are you in the sales process about the complexity of the implementation? And what I mean honestly, yeah. maybe is not the right word, transparency perhaps. Knowing that, hey, this thing's gonna take months and it's gonna be challenging and uh, we're gonna, we only, we might tell you we have a dozen people on the team, but really it's two uh, and everyone else is being shared all across. Yeah. And this is very, how honest are you in the sale that challenging about what the, company that's buying is going to have to do. Yeah, if you're not fully transparent, if you're not above board, if you're not honest, and then you're not leading them to, you know, insights that are going to help them either avert losses or make money or automate, you know, some value proposition that has a return on investment and a total cost of ownership, they're going to find out sooner or later. And reputation, personal reputation, brand reputation, company reputation, it's everything. You cannot shine anyone on. And, you know, the sales profession is going through a pretty big transformation, I would say, where honesty and forthrightness reign supreme, um, right? Uh, reviews uh, and, and LinkedIn, I mean, all the sites that are reviewing vendor technologies and um, LinkedIn and all these other places where people are putting their personal brands for everyone to see, um, you have to be above board. Uh, as soon as, um, you have a non-truth or a false positive and you try to, someone's going to discover it and they're going to, if they're upset and they're pissed, they're going to blast it out. So, um, yeah, you better, you, you better want to go into this profession because you want to help people. Um, and I would say I got into this world in the eighties where, you know, whatever the used car salesman gets used a lot. Um, and it, kind of the cool thing is today with a lot of the younger people that I'm mentoring, they're like, used car salesman, what do you mean by that? So I'm really glad that that has gone by the, you know, there's a lot of movies that portray yeah. the used car salesman. And, and again, that's not, it's not a positive, uh, right? So I'm glad that that has gone 
or it, it, it being shoved under, under the covers because it's not what you want to be. Yeah, the prime is being pretty much rewinding the miles. Right. <laughs> and you got, I mean, if you're not teaching and inspiring and then tailoring for, for the company and, and the space that they're in and help guiding to, you know, value at the end, the sale will never happen. Um, and more and more today because sales is now, it's, you know, when you're selling software, it's not on premise. It's not something you're going to have for decades. Right, it's a subscription, you know, and now there's competitors. So if you don't deliver, you're not, not only are you not gonna get them to increase, you're not, you're not gonna get a renewal. And that new logo that, again, there are people talk about customer acquisition cost and lifetime value, CAC and LTV, um, those two metrics are monitored very, very closely by, uh, you know, software companies here in the Valley because, um, to land a new logo um, will only really become profitable to that company if that new logo customer increases the seat count or the subscription over time and they continue to renew year over year. Um, that's when all of the inputs to customer success and customer support and services, because you have to build other teams to support the sale. Right? Those are individuals, those are processes, those are technologies. In fact, at my last company that I was operating at, um, a company called Cloudera, our initial deal size was $50,000. If we didn't take that customer that bought us for 50,000 to 250,000 the follow-on year, we were losing money. And if they didn't become a million dollar client in the, in the second full year or the third year, we were not, that was not a profitable customer for us. And so a lot of decisions are made when a company is scaling uh, based on customer acquisition cost, lifetime value, um, average deal size, how long does it take to get a deal, right? You st I, I stumble upon an inbound lead, right? If someone has taken themselves down the sales path 70% of the time, hopefully I can close them within a month or two. If that takes 12 months to close that deal, oh my, it better be of high, much higher value because a sales rep costs money. A sales engineer that may be supporting that sales rep costs money. The sales development rep that is supporting that sales rep uh, in trying to get meetings costs money. There's a sales and marketing cost stack that uh, is, is, is now closely monitored. And so again, um, and marketing comes in with lead generation and getting people to understand what it is you're doing. And you mentioned demos as a big part of that. Uh, and, and you also had a line earlier, I think it was an article you posted up for True Ventures around uh, 10, 10 tips of advice about B2B sales. And one of the tips I liked and that I've heard before um, is that don't, do a, don't give something without getting something back. Meaning make sure it's always a uh, give and get kind of relationship yep. when you give a demo make sure you know what you're getting after that. Are you giving demos for the sake of it? Uh, what happens next? Can you talk a little about that and how you structure the yeah. question of, I say, hey, Lars, I, I broke it down. Uh, Cloudera is one of my two options. Would love a demo. We're bringing our execs there. Uh, roll out the red carpet. How do you respond yeah. to something like God, that? Such a great it's such a great question. And it all has to do with your negotiation. It's, life is a big negotiation. And when someone is asking you to do something for them, it's because they want it. And you have to recognize that if they're asking you for something and you're gonna give it to them, you have to ask for something in return. Because when a company wants a demo of a big data solution, I do, I have to bring an architect with me, I have to bring an engineer with me, and I have to get support of my executive to get those resources to put on that. Now, if that is a $150,000 potential transaction and the company is a, is a big name logo that I can use in my further marketing efforts, it might be, uh, it might behoove me to say yes to all of it. But if I don't ask for something for that, the company that I'm giving to the demo in return, all they're gonna do is keep asking for stuff. Because if I keep saying yes to things that they want from me, they're just gonna keep asking. And what, what might you ask for in return? I will say, you know, Mr. Prospect, uh, Mrs. Prospect, thank you so much. Absolutely. I'm very motivated to come in with my team. It's going to take some orchestration and some approvals on my end because I'm going to be bringing 
individuals that are data scientists or architects are going to help not only me understand the best way to do it, but they're also going to have insights into your business. And one of the things that I know my manager is going to ask me in order to approve this is to understand whether or not you have a budget in place. Um, as you know, we're uh, in the middle of a sales cycle. So is your budgeting process defined and can you help me understand um, you know, at the end of the next three months, is there a budget in place to, to procure my software? What happens if the response to that is, sure, we got plenty of budget, but right now we're really just gathering information? Uh, so first of all, you have to have the courage to ask the question as a salesperson and be quiet and ask for the, and you know, then it's a, right now you're, now you've got a bite and you've asked a question and they said, well, God, we're just, it's like, okay, well then what I want to do, Mr. Prospect, Mrs. Prospect is make sure that we're set up to have the best demo in the world. And so why don't we orchestrate for a custom demo? So if I can uh, spend a little more time with your team, understanding your internal environment and your systems to a point where I can customize it, we're both gonna end up with more value. Um, and one of the things I say that is because if I don't, if I'm gonna bring resources to bear, I wanna know that I'm bringing the sale forward and that I have an opportunity. So if, I'm, if there's gonna be some pain on my side in giving us some stuff away, I want them to give some stuff away. So at the very so, least, a verbal commitment to, or more information, more knowledge. Yeah, I'll say, listen, can I, can I align my data scientist or my data architect with yours? Now, what I'm, what I'm aligning to is another relationship. I may have one with the internal champion that I'm talking to, but what I want to do is make more connection points inside the company with people in my company. I want another relationship to be built. And what I've just done is I've now aligned one of my 100-pound brains with one of their 100-pound brains. And they can start doing the, the vibe on the technology because sponsorship in a deal that takes a little bit longer, that's a little bit higher value, is very important. Mm -hmm. And there are gonna be influencers in a deal, there are gonna be blockers in a deal, there are gonna be people uh, that um, make the decisions or, you know. So the more people that I can align and create relationships with, and in a longer sales cycle, bigger deal, the better. So it may be a tactic to get to align others in the sales cycle that I'm in. Yeah. And again, if they say no to that, then that's an objection. And I wanna know why. Because if they're just kicking tires and they're already gonna go with my competitor but they haven't told me and they're just checking off a box, mm -hmm. I wanna suss that out so that I don't become column, it's called column fodder. When someone comes out with an RFP and they, uh, they because of their process, have to reach out to three vendors, they may have already made their selection, but if I put them through really a, a professional sales experience and buying process, I'm gonna educate them. And I wanna stack the deck towards me and my company. And if I educate them and I get more stakeholders on both sides involved in this deal, uh, I'm gonna learn more because guess what's gonna happen with the two technical guys uh, that are now talking uh, below or above me and my champion. They're gonna share. And now, two days later after they've interfaced, I'm gonna get with my team member and we're gonna talk about how that session went and they're gonna tell me all the things they uncovered. Um, and now I have a little bit better blueprint as to how to go down the sales path. So uh, one of the things we've been circling around a little bit is the uh, sales is building an engine, using it more as a science than an art, which is something you've written a lot about. As a part of that, you mentioned uh, that it's really, really important to have that experience come in, uh, help out sort of the young bloods uh, in the sales organization, incredible training. Part of that training, I imagine, is establishing a process. And that sales process, while unique for every company, there's certain overlapping themes that involve on that. And I know the one very, very important one to you is building pipelines. Uh, can you talk a little about how a young organization, even in the earliest stages where it's keeping head above water or they're just really information gathering, trying to talk to anybody and ask questions, how they begin to think, or in a long, long sales cycle where anything can happen, yeah. how they begin to think about process yeah. and pipeline management as a part of it. Absolutely, yeah. The most frustrating thing for any salesperson, 
uh, and let alone their manager and their uh, senior leader, is you get to the end of a, and let's just say, for, you know, for the sake of argument, a six-month sales cycle for a $25,000 product. You get to the end of that, um, and you get a no. And you get a no to either they went with a competitor or they went with no decision. It's one of the most de depleting, deflating, because you have, as a sales professional, poured hopefully your heart and soul and everything you have, resources. And um, it's just, it sucks. And I've broken down just about, I mean, thousands of losses. And I, and I guarantee you, as sure as I sit here, that in every single case when I broke down that kind of a loss and I interviewed the sales rep and I looked at all of the steps that he or she took going down the sales process, they missed some very important qualification steps along the way. They forgot to ask the tough question around budget. Maybe they asked it, but what they didn't ask was how often the budget committee uh, meets. And they forgot to ask the question, well, when was the last time they met? Well, they met two months ago. They won't meet for another 10 months. If you don't ask that question, you don't know. And now you're put off for 10 months because the really, really big company that has a budget committee, you know, meeting every 12 months to approve budget for different things. I mean, shame on you for not being the salesperson that asks all the questions up front. So a really good sales process is going to align a sales organization to one of two outcomes, and that is getting out of a bad deal as quickly as possible or to close a high-value deal as quickly as possible. And without a structured selling process, which is just a series of um, guidelines and swim lanes and questions that every sales rep can ask along the way, because if you get an inbound lead, let's say, you're at the very beginning. You haven't even done the discovery call. You haven't understood fully understood how much pain is there. That, uh, you know, is way different from whether it's three, six, or nine months down the road, and now you're in negotiation, you have a close date in mind, you have budget, um, and you may now just need to have the senior uh, CFO sign off on it, but you're very close. To get from stage one to stage nine, if you have nine stages in your selling process, you know, is going to take months in most cases. And so a really well-defined and orchestrated and author-structured selling process is going to guide a young or a tenured sales rep in and out of a good or bad deal uh, early. And it really is about qualifying, qualifying at every stage. It's not just qualifying the inbound lead for the first discovery call. It's asking these questions around budget, around pain, around other stakeholders that could be involved. Today, more and more, it's not just belly-to-belly -belly sales. Lars, the Xerox salesman, trying to sell a copier to an office manager. Today, when you're going in with complex solutions, there's anywhere from five up to 15 people that are going to be involved in demos, in trials, in discovery meetings. And so now you have to consensus sell. Now you have to deal with people that may be brought into a sales cycle that are they're, they're not only afraid, but your technology is going to replace the kingdom that they built with people in, in process and technology. And they know that if you come in with your big data solution, it's gonna rip out all the technology and they're gonna throw wrenches at you. And if you don't know that that blocker is there, so a good sales process is gonna help any sales team understand the right things to ask a buyer, uh, a potential buyer at a target company, the right questions at the right time and navigate um, um, to go and no-go decisions all along the way. And so it's called a structured selling process. It, uh, it ends up becoming the foundation of a forecasting methodology for all of the different opportunities or deals your sales team is working. An example, you have 10 sellers on your team. Each is managing, let's say, an average of 10 opportunities of different shapes and sizes, early, late stage, right? It's 100 opportunities that have started but have not closed. They're all in different stages. They need close dates, they need amounts, they need forecast categories, and they need stages.
those four knobs are what a salesperson tunes. Um, and again, all 10 reps need to be updating the statuses of their opportunities in near real time because as the sales operator or revenue operator, I've got to look at dashboards that show me where these 100 deals are. Uh, wow, look at that. There's 13 of them that are about to close. One of them's a million dollar deal. 10 of them are $10,000, uh, know, each $10,000. Man, I want to put my attention to the one deal that is representative 90% of the value of what my quarter is going to become. Mm -hmm. um, having that visibility is what comes from a system that's called CRM, Customer Relationship Management. Many people have heard uh, of a company called Oracle or SAP. Today, the modern uh, CRM is brought to you by a company called Salesforce.com. Mm -hmm. And that's what 90%... HubSpot's the free one. HubSpot <laughs> is, well, yeah, Pipedrive, Sugar. I mean, there's, there's 50 CRM companies or customized databases. They all do generally the same thing. But um, in any event, um, without a CRM, you really don't have a window to understand what's going on with your business, it becomes a place you can performance manage your sellers. It becomes uh, an opportunity to understand, man, we only have 10 reps. They each have 20 deals each and they can't even get to all their deals. We need to hire more people. I mean, the decision support and the uh, conversion metrics and the, the key performance indicators that you set up and stand up in CRM are gonna tell the leaders of the company where to take the business. And again, those that CRM has to be adopted by salespeople. Salespeople don't wake out of bed wanting to go into a system and update all their activities. It turns out that the only way to scale is to under, understand exactly what your business is doing, not once a week, not once a month, every single day. And as a part of that is obviously developing those leads, right? Developing those 20, one of the things you mentioned to me before was that your thing, what you're known for, is being the guy who hires the people who build pipeline. Yes. What do you look for in an individual that you hire? And what do you recommend that these early founders, many of them technical and not on the business side, but really anybody, how should they interview salespeople at the very earliest stages when they're hiring, say, their first four or five people? Yeah, you got all these good questions, man. Um, I think it's about curiosity. Salespeople are curious and they want to know. And they're motivated to want to know about the environment they're going into because they're trying to figure out if there's value um, in selling what it is they have in their bag. Um, and so, and the so curiosity, and then this thing that I keep coming back to, which I've heard in the valley, a lot of people call grit. I call it fire in the belly. You've got to want. You've got to want to want. Um, and again, um, selling in, in in the way that I grew up is just. It's all about activities, right? When you're selling, you're on the phones having conversations, you're on your computer sending out uh, uh, emails, you're uh, doing research on LinkedIn, understanding who the stakeholders might be that you wanna reach out to. Um, you're uh, reading through 10Ks uh, and company documentation to understand what motivates that company and what motivates its leaders. Uh, what are their initiatives for the year? Um, you know, technology is brought in to uh, make more efficient and make more money and make have everything go faster, right? Automation is what the valley's been built off of. Um, and if you believe you have something that can cure what ails them, then you got to be in front of them with something inspirational and something new that they can learn from you. Um, if they don't know who you are, you got to find them. If they know who you are, you got to get to them the second they are downloading um, and the cool thing about technology is for sales and marketing right it's all allowed us to understand the people that are knocking on our door and so that we can greet them as they're knocking um, and that um, is what this role is called sales development some people call it account development business development uh, lead development but the role of the SDR the sales development rep was a role that was, I would say, originated here in the Valley. And when people realized to fill the pipeline of a quota-carrying sales rep, it was much easier done by a, a new role. Because sales reps, right, when I got my gas card, my pager, and my territory at Xerox, 
I had to prospect, present, sell, negotiate, and close. I had to find my own deals and then work them. And when you start prospecting for uh, a deal, um, you have to do it not just with one company, one person, but with many people in many companies. It's a tough sport. It's tough and it's hard. It's like and, running a decathlon every day of the week. But what? here's what happens when you find a deal. All of a sudden, someone's like, yeah. Now, all of a sudden, you have this white kind of shiny object that you want to go after. And you, you stop. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right? Because now you got to plug in. And now every, all your hard work is paid off. Mm-hmm. But you have... 35 other streams that are going on with all these other people and companies you can never stop prospecting once you start but that's what happens and so you let all these other threads go cold because now you got the one prospect that wants to have a demo and they want you to they want to get pricing and so um, this role was created here in the valley um, for younger in their career people that wanted a shot at going into quota carrying sales to learn how to qualify uh, to learn how to ask these tough questions, to learn how to engage with earlier stage buyers, um, and then cut their teeth on process and technology and good phone skills and good follow-up skills. And it turns out that if you um, operationalize and you enable people coming out of college that are bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, they're passionate, um, and they're willing to learn, you can teach them how to use all the technology and you can give them playbooks and teach them what to say, when to say it, and, and have them cut their teeth on qualifying and setting up appointments. And what comes from that is a steady stream of qualified first appointments for sales reps who really all they want to do is sell, negotiate, and close anyway. And I built my first SDR team in 1997 for a company called Portal Software. And it was because my manager at the time, Bernie Scamra, said, Lars, build me a team so that my sales reps don't have to prospect. Because we were paying sales reps a lot of money. And he realized that every day that they weren't selling, negotiating, and closing was money out of his pocket. So he's like, if you build me a team of younger in their career people that we don't have to pay as much to, and they can fill the pi- one SDR can fill the pipeline of three of my reps, and so that's what he told me to do, and that's what I went and set out to do. And it worked, I got lucky, it worked gloriously. And I've taken that playbook from one company to another, and now 20 years later, I've helped four companies go from seed stage to uh, through all the series of funding, and all four companies became public companies. They went through the IPO process and became public companies. And in large part due to the pipeline that was being generated by you know, marketing and inside sales uh, in generating these qualified appointments so the elephant hunter salespeople could go out and slay the dragon and bring in the revenue. Man, well, as a uh, fantasy geek, I hate to end the interview on slaying dragons and hunting elephants. That sounds really fun. Uh, but I do want to finish off with a couple of rapid fire questions yeah. um, that we can get into. Are there any sales or startup or tech books that have been particularly helpful to you? You mentioned uh, you mentioned previously the challenger sale. Yeah, um, uh, Max Altshuler is the author of a book called Hacking Sales. He's also the uh, head of an organization called Sales Hacker. And I would say if you are new to sales and high-tech sales and the Valley uh, and you're younger in your career, Hacking Sales is a must-read. Um, even for an earlier stage product design engineering focused founder, if they want to understand kind of the mindset of someone coming into the sales profession, I think it's a great read. There's another organization called SASTER, S-A-A-S-T-R-E. It's run by a gentleman by the name of uh, Jason Lemkin. And I mean, it really is the de facto place to go for anyone that wants to stand up a subscription as a service software company. Um, uh, Founders, go there every day to download best practices, frameworks, methodologies for building out uh, a high-velocity uh, SaaS business. Um, they have events, they have blogs, they have, you can read, they have mentorship. Um, those are the two that I would say, um, there's another new company on the scene called Bravado, and they're providing mentorship for uh, uh, people that are either not in college or in college on the, the sales profession 
for people that might be interested. Um, so I would check that out. But there's some great podcasts out there, and I can't wait to go back into your archives and check out some of them. Um, but there's some great podcasts out there. Awesome. That was a whole strategy just to get you <laughs> plug where we are, but I'll, I'll take it. Uh, what is the sale over your career? What is a sale that you are most proud of landing? Um, so I was uh, a second year... I was a second year sales rep for Xerox and I'd been promoted into kind of the next level and sad for me at the time, and again, my patch, my territory, my group of accounts was Los Angeles. It was basically the airport area. So it was airlines, it was hotels, and it was car rental agencies on Century Boulevard. And it was a named account territory. And that summer, I had spent most of the year up into the summer building pipeline to sell really big copiers to bigger enterprises. And at the time, we had something. It was called uh, the Rodney King Riots. And it was this really uh, scary time in Los Angeles where um, uh, there was, right, there was the riots. It was the Rodney King Riots. And uh, no one wanted to come to LA. Um, it was ground zero for all things bad. Uh, race relations and riots and so no one came to LA that summer and so all the hotels had vacancies all the car rental agencies had to send their fleets back to Detroit and very few people were flying in so no one had budget for a copier um, it was the last thing on people's minds the last thing on people's minds so I went from being you know president's club qualifying you know uh, Xerox sales rep to nothing and um, I didn't know what to do because uh, I had a steady stream of leads and I had a sales manager and, a, and, and you know, we were having meetings every week at great companies. And uh, my manager, who understood uh, that I was going through, he said, Lars, um, we're going to do something different. And uh, we went after a much larger corporate entity outside of Los Angeles. It was Enterprise Rent-A-Car. But, and they were headquartered somewhere else. And we went after a much bigger fish um, and did a longer term sale and he introduced something called solution selling, which turns out is a methodology. So you can Google solution selling and it is a methodology by where you're selling a much bigger uh, uh, solution that takes a lot longer to sell and is a lot bigger ticket item and it takes usually years to implement and get value from. Um, and so it's a longer sale. And so he introduced the principles of solution selling. And uh, after a much longer sales cycle, I had my first sale. It didn't happen to be in that year. It was in the follow-on year. So I had a horrible year. I was probably the last on the team. I didn't get any quarter relief or anything like that. But I learned that through adversity, you gotta look at things a little differently. And he got me to understand that sales in a company like Xerox where it's given to you a little bit easier. Again, Xerox invented the technology that a lot of other people ended up selling. And I went from being very successful because I had the brand and a product that worked behind me into a sales rep that learned how to bring a much broader um, uh, message uh, and a much bigger, longer-term sale. And so that sale wasn't one copy or one company. It was a blanket purchase agreement that we negotiated for Enterprise for all their offices nationwide. And it became a multi-million dollar deal down the road. So um, from that, I learned a ton. That's a great story. I like it. Selling copiers during the Rodney King riots. That's a BBC coverage <laughs> for you. Um, on the other hand, what has been your greatest failure? Or in other words, a failure that has later on led to more success? could be a lost deal, it could be something on a greater magnitude. Yeah, it, um, so I was working for a company called uh, Portal Software, and this was one of the first companies that I was at that went public. And so all of the excitement and all of the energy, um, it all came with it, but it happened to be, and I joined them in 1997, and I was with them till 2002, and uh, most people in the Valley know that the bottom fell out of the dot-com dot boom, 2000, 2001. 
And I had built a team of about 75 people globally. And overnight, when the bubble burst, um, all the companies that had gone public and were doing great, they fell off the map or they fell off a cliff. And we went from $125 stock to $0.25 cent stock in about a year. And we went from having pipeline and selling our online billing engine uh, from to the biggest and the smallest companies in the world to nobody. And I now had to, I now had to do, uh, they're called reductions in force. Uh, it's a term uh, used for layoffs. I had to now take a four year run where I'd built up a team of 75 people and decide who and when, or not when, but whom I should get rid of. And all I had ever done was being managed and led by people in growth companies. And all I was doing was bringing goodness to a company because I was scaling an organization and a process to bring revenue and pipeline. Now I had to get rid of humans, human capital in order to save the company from going under. And the very first, and I, I had no idea, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and there wasn't anyone there that had ever done this before too because the dot-com bubble had never burst before. It's the first time it happened. So, um, uh, yeah, I asked for a ton of help. I went to other people that I knew in other industries. So I asked for a ton of help, but I was flying completely blind. And I literally had to let people go that were, not only I had hired them and developed them and become close with them, but they had families. They were bringing new you know, family members into, and, I, and this was their career, and this was their livelihood. And I had to go from 70 to 35 in one day. And then uh, six months later, I had to go from 35 to 20. And then uh, three months later, I had to go from 20 to 10. So the dot-com bubble, everyone thought, oh, this is just gonna be a one-time thing. It, you know, it lasted for three years, and I literally had to tear down the, 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 the same team that I built over four years. I think it took me a year and a half. And, and what does one take from something like that? That I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And uh, all the successes that I had uh, and all of the confidence and self-esteem that you get from succeeding, I, I literally had no idea. Um, and I, and I, things were happening so fast, I didn't have time to go ask people. And so I made some really, really bad decisions. Um, uh, like I took out an entire team in EMEA, uh, in, in, in Europe, Middle East Africa. And it turned out that if I looked at the data, that's where we actually had some we, had, we were having success uh, because the dot-com bubble didn't affect me in the same way it did the United States. And I probably would have taken uh, a larger chunk of my team out in America versus in EMEA, but instead I, you know, and no one was watching because everyone was going through the same thing. So, um, and I'm, all those little mistakes you don't realize till after. Um, and again, the data wasn't there and, um, and this was, you know, was 15 years ago. Um, but um, today, um, I, you know, I fail every day uh, and I succeed every day. Um, and I also know that there's an answer out there. So I always ask for help. And so for the listeners, whether you're young or you're old, never be afraid to ask for help. I mean, it's hard to build a company in the valley. It's hard to be a newly minted entrepreneur that has never built anything. But we all have been through the pain and the agony, but also the beauty of building companies. And we've never been more ready to give it all away. And so most of what I do today, well, I, I, I've indexed and cataloged and written about all of the best practices and frameworks and methodologies that I've come out with. And they're all on my website or they're all connected to my LinkedIn profile. And they're all blueprints to do account-based sales development or to come up with your creative new comp plan for an SDR. They're all there. Um, I give it all away because it's too hard to do this alone. Um, and what I love about the Valley today is 10 years ago, during the, that first bubble, everyone was walking around making sure that you signed their NDA because they thought what they had was this IP and no one can have it. No one does that anymore. Why? Because it's so hard to build a company and to grow a company and to scale a company. And um, having energy and smarts isn't, you know, you need, you need so much more and you need help from people that have done it before. And I've now done it four times successfully. Now, 
were there massive failures uh, in those four successes? Sure there was. Um, and that's where culture, um, and that's where leadership and, you know, and, 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 and management. Um, and so, you know, I'll leave your listeners with, if you're looking to get into a company, make sure you understand um, if they have good leadership, good management. Um, I mean, everyone's got great products out there that work, um, but are they running the business? Uh, are the lines of communication open and honest? Um, you know, is span of control an issue or, right, is, are you going onto a team where there's one manager for 15 people, um, right? Uh, you're not gonna get much attention. If you're someone new coming into a sales team and you have a manager that has 15 direct reports, I can't tell you how many, how many things go wrong during any single day where that frontline sales manager is pulled in 20 different directions and they're not gonna have time for someone saying, hey, so those things matter when you're starting your career. Um, do they have the right technology stack? Are they enabled with playbooks? Um, is senior leadership, uh, does your manager have a voice um, with senior leadership so that um, if something is going wrong that they'll be listened to? I can't tell you how many companies, based on the role, don't, don't have a voice uh, in the weekly uh, leadership team meetings. One of the things that I do every time I go into a new company is I'll go, but I want a, at least a voice or a seat at that executive uh, leadership team meeting once a week because I want to bring my metrics and I want to help you understand whether or not we're building a good business or a bad business. And if we're starting to trend towards bad, I want to tell you why I think it's going in that direction because I want sponsorship to change it or to hire someone new or to get rid of, you know, all those things. And that's leadership and that's culture. And those two things are becoming way more important than just the product you're selling. There are a lot of hot companies out there that are growing so fast that sometimes leadership, management, and culture, it's an afterthought. Um, and you can get into a company that grew really quickly and then wake up and go, I can't stand coming into work. I got idiots around me or I got people that are poisoning the well. Um, and I don't want to end this note on draconian, but I'm telling you, there are a lot of companies that uh, picked up the wrong people along the way. Well, well, we'll end this not draconian, but knowing all of the experience to be brought, knowing all the writings you've done and knowing all the giving back you're doing, um, including helping mentoring high school students and all this stuff we didn't get a chance to talk about. Lars, where can people find you, your work, your writing, uh, and where would you direct them to to learn more about what you're doing today? So I would just, I mean, my LinkedIn profile, my name is Lars Nilsson, last name is spelled N-I-L-S-S-O-N. You can also reach me at Lars at salessource.com, which is my small advisory firm. Um, and there's a website, uh, www.salessource.com. Okay, Lars Nilsson, thank you very much. Right on. Well, there you have it. Lars Nilsson, ladies and gentlemen. Sales careers should start at companies with great training programs. Do not give demos without asking for something in return. And selling copy machines during a riot? Well, not as easy as it sounds. If you like the podcast, leave us a review. If you didn't, tweet me at alubarski2 and we'll make it all better. Thanks and happy selling.